Hi, friends, and welcome to the Good Work Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Leonard, and we are here to ask the question, what does good work mean to you? We'll explore the values that drive us, the tensions we wrestle with, and ultimately how we connect the dots between achievement and fulfillment in our lives. Sound heavy? Nah. Let's lighten up and dive in. Dr. Brad Plunt, hello. I'm so Hi, delighted you that you're here. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's nice to see you. Thanks for being here. I will tell you that anytime I'm in the presence of someone that has much more knowledge on a particular topic than me, there is a script that creeps in of, ooh, intimidation expert. Um, we have an expert in the room. I am excited to learn from you and to see where our conversation goes. So just wanted to out myself that intimidating when you have somebody that's an expert. Know what I mean? You don't need to feel that way. I I quite often talk about how uh, what I much of what I know is because of many of the mistakes I've made along the way. So we'll um, I will humble myself before you pretty quickly, probably. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, that helps me feel much more at ease. Um, and for those of you that are not familiar with uh, Brad and and his background, I'll just introduce you for a moment. So, Dr. Brad Plunt, uh, you are a renowned psychologist, author, and you've really been a pioneer in the field of financial psychology. You have a profound understanding of the intersection between psychology and wealth. And as I understand it, you've dedicated your career to unraveling the complex emotions and beliefs that drive our financial behaviors. You're the founder of Your Mental Wealth, uh, an initiative that focuses on transforming our relationships with money so that we can hopefully feel a little bit better. You have countless tools and research papers and books, and we will make sure that you know where to find details on all of those things in the show notes. But Dr. Klontz, may I call you Brad? Yes, of course. <laughs> that feels more right because we did meet each other in more of a personal context rather yeah. than professional. Yeah, you call um, me Coach Brad. Whatever. Coach Brad, yep, yep, yep. So that everyone knows we met uh, we met uh, in the dugout of Little League Field. So That's right. There you go. You never know when the, when the spark of something is, is going to be born. So, Brad, welcome. So glad you're here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I always like to start at the beginning. If you can, you know, share your a little bit about your story and what about your you know personal background brought you to the work that you do today. So my story begins, I would imagine, when my parents divorced when I was about two years old. And we went through a period of time of not having a lot of money, <laughs> um, many years of not having a lot of money. And really, even as a young boy, I remember going to one of my friend's houses. And in retrospect, they were probably solid middle class, but I thought they were like extremely wealthy. And I remember, this is in middle school, I remember sitting down at dinner with my friend and his parents. And I remember interviewing my friend's father about, what well, did you go to college? What did you do? I mean, I was just so curious around what did, did this individual do to get where they were? And I think I've been fascinated with it my entire life around what are the mindsets? What are the habits? What can we learn about our relationship with money? And for me, it, it evolved into helping people become, you know, financially healthy. But for myself also and my family, just trying to figure out how do people climb the socioeconomic ladder? And along the way, I've been blessed with being able to climb it myself. And 
Um, I also work with many ultra wealthy individuals. So I, I've spent a lot of time working with people at every rung of the socioeconomic ladder and have done a lot of studies on what is the psychology of wealth. Mm-hmm. And so that the, but my passion was really driven, I think, at an early age of, of recognizing the connection between having resources and having less stress and having the opportunity to you know, have better experiences. And so really a big part of my passion, too, I'm pretty active on social media. And a lot of what I do there and and one of my passions is to try to bring what we've learned in the laboratory and what we've learned in all of our research around the psychology of of wealth and teaching as many people that as possible. So that's that's kind of my passion on social media. And um, where can folks find you on social media if they want to dive in? Well, so pretty much everywhere. (laughs) including TikTok, where I actually have my biggest following on TikTok, about 800,000, probably skews more young individuals. Hmm. Um, But yeah, I'm pretty passionate about the social media efforts. It is an incredible way to reach people, right? And if your goal is to be able to spread these tools and ideas and frameworks that can really help people climb the ladder themselves, how awesome that you get to leverage that to, you know, speak to somebody directly. Is there a recent video that particularly resonated that uh, you could point to and maybe recap for us so that we can learn from you too? Yeah. So I had a video that has hit like about one and a half million views on Facebook recently. And, you know, the challenge is to, to take a concept that is, you know, fairly clinical or research oriented and make it exciting for like a 14 year old brain, because frankly, we all have 14 year old brains around social media. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> We have to be fed quickly or we'll just scroll past it. Yeah. And, um, Attention fans of a fruit fly. Exactly. And it was a video on learned helplessness. And I, I tried to make it compelling. It did a pretty good job based on the, on, on the views, but I was explaining the concept of learned helplessness and how psychologists discovered that. And it's one of the things that I'm most passionate about battling. So long story short, they did experiments with dogs, which is just horrific. I'm a dog lover. Um, but what they would do is put them in cages where they would electrify the bottom of the cage and, and the dog would jump around and try to escape. And what they re- after a while, though, the dog in that environment would just lay down and whimper after a while because it realized escape is impossible. So no matter what I do, I can't escape. So then it would just cower, lay down and just try to hope for this thing to pass. They then changed the condition of the experiment where they put a little barrier partway in the cage. And on the other side of the cage, there was no electric charge. So essentially, the dog had experienced the world where escape is impossible. All of a sudden, it's in a new world where escape is just a leap away and the dog never tried to escape. And so, uh, again, I'm a dog lover. I don't like this this form of research. But the, um, the carry home message is that for many of us, when we grow up in an environment that is harmful, you know, a, a painful family system, tr- history of trauma, we can land on this belief that escape is impossible. Things are hopeless. It's called mm-hmm. learned helplessness. And we learn this. We learn that we're helpless. Meanwhile, from a broader point of view, you know, freedom might be just to hop away. But psychologically, mm-hmm. we're, we're stuck. So anyway, I took I took that research and made it into like a 60 second video that went viral. Wow. So are there particular, so when I, when you said learned helplessness, I guess the first thing that I associated with, that I personally associated with is a kind of cultural narrative around art and artists and the concept of the starving artist, 
because that was my background. It's, you know, still part of my passion. And, and I wonder if you have any insights about, you know, learned helplessness and the arts. Mm-hmm. Well, the poor arts, you know, and the poor humanities. I, I actually made one of my other viral video series were on, um, these are the worst paying college majors. And, um, part, part of that effort is a lot of people who, don't um, have resources and perhaps their parents didn't go to college, but have this belief that if, well, if I just go to college, then everything will be fine. And granted, the average college grad, even today, makes over a million dollars more during their lifetime. So I am very pro-college. Uh, I'm pro-humanities and I'm pro the arts. Yeah. However, when you look at the median salary for people who are in the arts and in the humanities, frankly, all the stuff that I love, like into psychology, into social yeah. work, into performing arts, fine arts, I think all the things that really, really make life worth living, if you ask me, and cultures really matter, yeah. are the ones that are, are not getting paid very much at all. And so it was a cautionary tale for people who had to take on, and many of these students are, are taking on tens of thousands of dollars in loans, and yeah. then they're surprised on the other side where, frankly, our culture is not reinforcing and rewarding them for this pursuit, and then they are stuck and they're learned helplessness. They feel trapped. They, they're overwhelmed by all this debt. And not to go out too far on a tangent, there's a couple other things I would say about for some of the starving artists, there is a belief pattern around money that makes it even more challenging for them to take care of themselves financially. Yeah. So first of all, we're, we're drawn into the humanities and, and the arts, you know, not primarily as a way to make money. Now, of course, many, of course, you need to make money <laughs> to, to live, but that's not the driving force. You know, a lot of times when that's the driving force, people go into finance. Right. They, they go into business. Mm-hmm. And so there's already sort of like that's not the top of the list for me. And then in our studies, too, we have found and, and some educators fall into this category and actually mental health providers, too, where they are what we would call money avoidant. So mm-hmm. they actually have a negative association with money. So yeah. this can come about from many different ways. So perhaps they saw a wealthy individual or their parents or grandparents saw a wealthy individual who happened to be a horrible human being. And by the way, they do exist. <laughs> and then they've associated, well, you know, rich people are, are greedy, money's bad. Perhaps they come from money and they have a sense of, I, I guess I would call it social justice. Like it's, it's yeah. not fair. It's not fair that I was born into this family that happened to have money. Um, it's not fair that I was born in the United States. I mean, the average American sure. in the United States is, is incredibly wealthy compared to the rest of the world. Sure. So there, there's this sense of that's not fair. And that is something that's important to integrate, right? I mean, because of course it's not fair. You know, you, you, it's an accident of birth. Mm-hmm. However, some individuals will then stick with this negative association with money where they then start to repel it. It's like they, mm-hmm. they push it away or they try to get rid of it as soon as they get it. And, and I would put that on the unhealthy side of the scale in terms of coming to terms with this sense that life is not fair. And who am I to get this when other people don't? I think that's actually a, um, a universal experience. But sometimes people in the arts will will come from it from that type of background and they have that negative association. So that's that's what I would say about the starving artist. Yeah, thank you. I think that's really insightful. And I certainly have experienced that and witnessed it. And also, I wonder, you know, is the if one end of the spectrum is money avoidance, what does it look like to integrate that and to have a healthier relationship with money when you're creative and in the humanities? Or yeah. social work, you know, mental health, education, any number of the, the fields that have a similar narrative and a similar kind of framework that tends to go along with it, these, these scripts that tend to accompany those professions. What would a healthy integration sound like or look like? 
Yeah, so you said the word scripts, and that that's really what the research is. You, either you did your homework or were just like attuned. So we call them money scripts in our in all the research we've done, and we call them scripts for a very specific reason because quite often they were almost like written by our parents or written by our grandparents or written for us by typically in childhood our attempt to make sense of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so the childlike component is very very important because we don't usually talk about this stuff, right? We don't really talk about money. People feel so much shame around money, and um, we see that shame around money at Every socioeconomic um, level. So people feel ashamed they have too little. Really ashamed. They feel ashamed they have too much. Shame, 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 shame. We're all worried of being judged based on our net worth or income or whatever. So this is a sort of a universal sense of, of shame. And as a matter of fact, Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychology, identified this connection between money and shame mm. hundreds of years ago. It's like almost sort of this universal human experience. Mm. And so we have a bunch of beliefs. And they are developed in childhood. And the the critical part of that is they are only partially true. They're only partially true. And um, for example, with uh, money avoidance, like money's bad or money corrupts, I have negative association with money. Now, there's truth to that. Like we can think of many individuals that money has corrupted them or frankly, the lack of money has led to to corruption. It's only part of the truth, though. And that's where the integration comes in. And it's hard to integrate unless you talk about it and come to terms with it. You have to identify these beliefs to begin with because they drive all of our financial behaviors. For most most of us, they're hidden in our subconscious because we don't really talk about it. And so it really helps to shed some light on that because the integration is, is that some rich people are greedy and corrupt. Some, definitely not all. And so I like to then think of examples of people who are blessed with money. Again, it's rich is relative, like whether it's the average American in in the context of the entire world or if it's uh, someone in the 1% in the United States. There are many, many people who've done incredible things for the world with their wealth. And I can think of countless examples of, you know, diseases being eradicated and, you know, social services being delivered and nonprofits. I mean, there's tons of evidence to support that belief also. And so that is, I think, the integration. It's like money can corrupt people and also money can be used to make the world a better place. That is a much more functional belief. It's much more accurate and um, it actually will serve us better. So if the if a healthier integrated version of, of that script is money can be used to make the world a better place, rich, rich people can be generous, right? How do you move from the, you know, one pendulum swing to the other. What does that integration process look like? Well, Someone what, saying, hey, that's me, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> I want to get over there. How do I do that? Right. And it's very challenging because we have what we call in psychology a confirmation bias. And so what, whichever part that you want to latch onto, any, any belief around money, which again, they're all partially true, typically, you can find a nonstop evidence and Facebook groups <laughs> and friends that support that belief. And so, like, for example, when I grew up, I definitely had this belief that, you know, rich people are, are greedy or they've, they've taken advantage of others. And because, um, quite frankly, I didn't know any wealthy people. And it's a much easier thing to latch on to because now I can feel better about myself, right? Because I'm not one of them. Mm-hmm. And so it's really challenging because if you're really attached to the belief, again, you can find just mountains of evidence and all these people supporting that belief. And so the hardest part is actually opening your mind to the idea that maybe I don't have it all figured out. Maybe I don't understand everything about this thing called money. 
And so it's a, it's an open-mindedness that, first of all, needs to occur. And then secondly, I think it's certainly, I think, finding mentors and other people, like, how do you look at it? You know, like, if you're feeling guilty about money, perhaps you can find somebody who is at a similar level socioeconomically who's not doesn't seem to be feeling guilty about money. And then you sort of pick the brain, like, how do you look at money? Mm-hmm. And what you'll probably hear are some mindsets that may be surprising to you, things you hadn't really thought about, but can help help you shape your relationship with money to be quite, you know, to be healthier, quite frankly, yeah. because that's really what we're trying to do here. Uh, money is not good. It's not bad. Um, it's it's a tool. And it's it really comes down to how is that tool being used? It can be used to destroy things. It can be used to create beautiful things. But it's just a tool. Yeah, it's a it's a tool. And it's a tool that uh, we made up. Absolutely. I'll, I'll say one other thing, too, just because I think yeah. it's I found it really interesting in the research that the people and we've done this study with tens of thousands of people, the, these um, assessments and the people who score highest in the category of money avoidance. So these are beliefs like there's virtue in having less money. Now, that's a really interesting mm-hmm. belief, right? I'm actually a better person if I have less money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rich people are greedy, money corrupts. The people who score really high on that also score really high on what we call money worship. And these are beliefs. I wish I had more money. My life would be better if I had more money. So there's an obsession with having more money themselves. So ironically, and the correlation was like 0.45, which is an unbelievably high correlation. It, ironically, the people who most sort of despise money are the ones who most desperately want to have it for themselves, which is, mm-hmm. which is a bit, bit of the, it's a bit ironic. It's also really describes how messed up we all are with money. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like this, this ambivalence, right? So yeah. you know, I hate it. I love it. And then people get stuck in that pattern can have tremendous success in a business venture and, and they bloom it all and they right. just kind of bounce back and forth with this um, ambivalent relationship with money. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring that up, you know, the, the opposite effect of when, you know, let's say someone does have ample resources and they have a ton of abundance in their lives, you know, regardless of where it came from, came from although I'm sure where it comes from also plays a part in their psychology, whether it was, you know, the, the mindset is going to be different for someone that, you know, quote unquote, earned it themselves versus inherited it, et cetera. And we can get into that if you want. But I'm curious, you know, what is one of the most common? And when you say, you know, money avoidance, money worship, what are you calling those, you know, those categorizations? Yeah, these are, uh, the I would call them money script categories. Money, so, money yeah. Script. So when we found four of them in our studies, so we, we mm-hmm. collected as many money beliefs as we could and we had administered that test to many, many individuals and then did some statistics on it. And we found those four patterns. And can you recap yeah, so, them for us? Yeah. So there's money avoidance, which we talked yeah. about. There's money worship, which is mm-hmm. putting money on a pedestal. It's going to solve all my problems. The third one we found is what we ended up calling money status. And this mm-hmm. is where we are linking our self-worth to our net worth. Won't buy something unless it's new. If someone asked us how much money we made, we would kind of pump up the figure because we want people to look at us as having more than we actually do. So our status is really attached to it. Now, those three belief patterns are associated with self-destructive financial behaviors. So essentially, they're associated Mm -hmm. with poor financial health. The fourth category is what we call money vigilance. And so these are the individuals who believe that it's important to save for a rainy day. They actually kind of downplay how much they have. They don't worship money in that sense. They're not trying to impress everyone with how much money they have. Actually have a bit of anxiety around money. And Mm -hmm. if you think about it, if you're never worried about the future, why would you plan or save for the future? Of course you wouldn't, right? So there's right. there's a sense of like, oh, this this is a resource I should take care of for future benefit of myself or perhaps my children, my grandchildren. Sure. And those that's the category that was associated with financial health. 
Money vigilance. Money vigilance. Okay. Yes. Great. So, so we've got our four money scripts. And the question that I wanted to ask you was, is there a particular money script that shows up most often with folks who do have an abundance of resources? Yep. It's typically money vigilance. Okay. Interesting. And, you know, for someone that perhaps, you know, does feel shame around having too much and perhaps they have a, you know, they have a script that, you know, rich people can be generous, right? So we're there, but then they still have shame around, am I making the most of this responsibility that I'm given, right? I I always grew up hearing, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, right? And stand on the shoulders of giants. And if you have the privilege and you, you know, had the good fortune of, you know, in the unfair wheel of life, having the resources, then you do good with them. And that's, and that's your responsibility. So that was, you know, that was where some of my own, you know, money stories came from. And so let's say, you know, someone has that, you know, that intention and that script that, you know, rich people can be generous, but then they have shame around, am I doing enough? The world has countless challenges and problems, you know, am I doing my part? What kind of script is that? And how do you address that mindset? Yeah. So, you know, the first thing I would say is that shame is universal around money. So I, I truly is. Again, I, I, people feel ashamed they have too much. They have a shame they feel too little. So, I mean, the bottom line is if you got rid of all your money, you'd still feel ashamed. <laughs> you would just be feeling ashamed <laughs> for, for a different reason. And, you know, I think part of it is is really trying to, as you said, you know, there's a privilege that you have earned or, or not earned. It doesn't really matter. And so what do we do with that and so that we can fulfill our life's mission? I think it's really important to have a mission. We're, we're kind of diving deep in here, but I think it's really important to have sort of a, yeah, yeah, like a mission. Dive in. Like, Go for yeah, it. What is your mission in life? And I encourage people yeah. to really think about it and actually not just think about it, but to write it down. And this is one of the benefits of actually having resources. And, um, you know, I talk about wealth in the context of it being relative because, you know, again, the average American is, is, incredibly rich compared to most human beings who've ever walked the planet of, you know, walked the planet. And there's one of the benefits of having resources is there's, and one of the curses is that you now have time to think about all this stuff, right? Mm. And to uh, try to come to terms with it. Mm. And there's some suffering involved in that. It's, it's, it's a bit ironic, but for example, when people are have to work every day to put food on the table, they are actually happier than on the weekends. When they don't have to go to work. Now, this is, re- this is really fascinating. And they, they've done many, many studies on this because people don't think it's true. No, no, no. I don't even like my job. I'm not oh. happier at work. Well, as a matter of fact, you're happier at work than you are on the weekends or on vacation. Hmm. And you would never admit this, but what they do is they will give you a little, a little app where you have to rate every hour. How are you feeling? You know, they're hmm. not going to ask, are you happier on vacation? Cause you'll say, of course I am. I should be, but there's sort of this curse of free time. That is a real interesting psychological challenge for many of us. So anyway, I, I think it's 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 a gift to even have to be thinking about Absolutely. these broader ideas. And actually, I've, I've worked with a lot of entertainers and you know, highly successful individuals who all of a sudden don't have to work. And even though this is something they wanted their entire life, almost all of them fall into a deep depression and it's an existential crisis. So I I thought I would just sort of normalize that experience also for many people. But there's also beauty in it because you now get to self-reflect and think about, okay, so 
Um, again, whether I earned it, whether I inherited it, what, is, what does this mean? What, what do I need to do with this to help fulfill my life's mission? Yeah. So I actually think it's a great place to be is, is sort of in that tension. But I, but I also think that I would just sort of throw out that I think shame has no place in that. That That's mm-hmm. just, I don't think shame has any place around any of it, but just recognizing that we're, we're prone to it. And the reason we're prone to shame really come is psychological too. Yeah. Yeah. And, walk us through that a little bit. Yeah. So our status is so important to us and it is like baked into our DNA. And, and the reason it, that's the case is we have spent most of our time on earth in small groups of individuals, a hundred to 150 people, you'd call it your tribe and your status, like every single day you're walking around. How's my status? How are we doing? You know, because you don't want to get kicked out because if you got kicked out of your tribe, it meant certain death. Right. And so we like to tell people literally oh, getting eaten by a lion. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But we like to tell people, oh, you shouldn't care about what other people think. Well, that's that's an it's a ridiculous statement. So part of our shame has to do with how are people going to judge us? You know, I have too yeah. much. I have too little. And a big part of that is your comparison group, too. It's one of the reasons why we tend to cluster with people at the same socioeconomic level. And, you know, ironically, if you don't, you're probably going to regress to the average of whatever group you're hanging around. Because of that deep sense of needing to feel connected to other people. Interesting. So when we, you know, when we say we, you know, you become the average of the five people that you hang out with the most, is that the phenomenon that you're talking about where we, we kind of conform and we default to the, probably the lowest common denominator. Right. Um, of beliefs. Yeah. And so, yeah. so for example, if all of a sudden you were thrust, you know, like let's say the, the socioeconomic ladder, let's say it's like, a scale of 10. So if all of a sudden you're at a 10 and you were thrust down to a one, or if you were at a one and all of a sudden you jumped up through a 10, it will create the similar psychological um, terror. Like, and you would say, oh no, but if somebody's at a one and all of a sudden they're at a 10, that's good, right? Well, most people end up blowing it and going right back to where they started. And the reason they do that makes total psychological sense is because all of a sudden they feel like they're outside of their tribe. They don't know the language. They don't know the culture. They they're worried that people will take advantage of them, et cetera. It, it becomes everyone asks them for money. It becomes so psychologically threatening that people will subconsciously just get rid of all the money. Wow. It, it's sort of fascinating. And then when people who are at a higher socioeconomic level all of a sudden take a big financial hit, a lot of times they will do everything they can do to maintain appearances and, and try to pretend that it's not happening. Sometimes go into tremendous amounts of debt to try to keep it afloat. Yeah. Because they are terrorized and terrified of all of a sudden not belonging to their their group. And and again, that happens at every socioeconomic level. So if the thing that these two ends of the spectrum have in common is that shame is present, shame abounds, right? right. Shame abounds. What it, would you say that the shame itself is kind of the root cause of some of these funny woes? And I don't know if it's the root I think cause, so. but like if we deal with if we address the shame, would the scripts resolve themselves more easily? Yes, I think so. And and the way it manifests itself are, are you know, in terms of the extremes are you'll see individuals who don't have a lot of money are the ones who tend to spend the most on outward displays of wealth. Right. Mm-hmm. So I want to wear designer labels or I'm going to buy an expensive watch. And all of our studies show that that is that is that pattern is actually seen in people at less net worth and less income much more frequently than people at the higher levels. And ironically, at the higher levels, people tend to downplay how much they have. So again, this is sort of shame. Like, I don't want people to think 
bad of me because I have these things. Sure. That seems to be a pretty common pattern. And then everyone wants to tell me that's not true in, in Miami Beach and that's not true in California. And I would just suggest that people feel more comfortable <laughs> when they get around people like them. And so you'll see those patterns shift a little bit. But I, I do think that shame does drive a lot of our self-destructive, I would say, and financial behaviors. And, you know, part of financial health is being OK with where you're at and not feeling a lot of angst and beating yourself up and guilt and, re- and all of that. So, yeah. So how do we tell shame to take a hike? <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's so shame is essentially like let's distinguish guilt from shame real fast here. So yeah. guilt is actually good for you. So guilt means that you did something wrong. Okay, so now if you did something wrong, I truly think you should probably try to make it right. Hmm. You know, sometimes I do something wrong in my relationship with my wife. And if if I didn't feel any guilt, I don't know, I guess I would be a psychopath, right? But I do feel guilt because I, I hurt her feelings. And so now that makes me want to go make amends, right? I want to go repair yeah. that relationship. And so guilt is good. Shame is terrible. And shame basically says, I'm bad. Like there's something wrong with me. I'm defective. And that is um, shame, I would say, is an, an emotional glue trap. And it just keeps you stuck. Because if you're telling yourself there's something wrong with me, well, there's yeah. really no repair for that. And I would just suggest that that is unnecessary, that regardless of your socioeconomic level. You're, you're probably born, in, for many of us, we're born into it to start, right? And so that, that is totally out of our control. There's Shame has really no logical place there. And yet it's so pervasive. And I think, yes, you know, you brought up the just the family context. Right. And we we met through our kids playing Lily together. And, you know, I think about this as a parent when the difference between, you know, when you see a, you know, and what we would call a negative behavior in your kids, the difference between, you know, you did a bad thing or you made a bad choice versus you're a bad kid. So making it about the mistake that you made, the thing that you did and not identifying with it. Is that kind of the... Yeah, that, that's thing? it. And and using the child example, we can look at it as a metaphor too. And, yeah, you know, w- would you tell your child, you know, you're worthless? You know, no. I mean, you're a terrible person. Well, it's so interesting because that's what we do to ourselves when we're, when yeah. we're stuck in shame. I mean, that's, that's literally the internal conversation we're having in a way that um, most of us would never say to our child. And so being conscious of what are you saying to yourself um, is is really, really important. And there was something that you said, and I hope you can um, help me call it back to the, you know, to front of mind. But there was something that you said a couple minutes ago about, you know, we're always told, you know, fill in the blank. And that's a ridiculous thing. Or was it don't compare yourself to other people? Yes. Or it was, yeah. Is that yeah. We're told don't don't worry about what other people oh, think. Don't worry about what yeah. other people think. So like that's something that we tell ourselves all the time. And especially in the personal development world, you know, anything self-help, it's like, you know, stay in your lane. Don't compare yourself. You know, don't worry about what anybody else thinks. Just do you. Right. Like, Shine bright, little diamond. And well, okay, if that is an absolutely, from a psychology perspective, ridiculous thing to say to somebody, it is. I think think it is ridiculous because I think that it's impossible not to do it. So I think it's a much more helpful thing to recognize that you are going to be comparing yourself to other people constantly. Mm -hmm. And um, if you can just be aware that you're going to do it, you can perhaps not sort of act out in the middle of it. If you pretend it's not happening, we're much more vulnerable to 
quite frankly, being stuck around it. Yeah. So just recognizing that we are susceptible to it. And so, and by the way, this happened, this is a really great awareness to have on social media. Mm-hmm. So, so like, I'll just pick on Instagram. Like, if you want to feel bad about yourself, do it as social comparison. Just get on Instagram right now and start looking yep. around because what you'll see, and I, this COVID was a great example of this. So people who were single, right? Mm-hmm. Stuck in a, an apartment all by themselves. They would see pictures of families, you know, playing a game at the dinner table and going, oh, I'm alone during COVID. And I, and, and so this is called um, relative deprivation is the psychology where we feel deprived, you know, relative to what they're having. Meanwhile, those of us with children would look at a picture of somebody alone in an apartment reading a book and just be like, oh, my God, that would be heaven. Just give me 10 minutes of that. Just 10 oh, minutes. Two minutes. I would take two minutes. Two exactly. minutes. I would like picture me in the car with the doors locked for two minutes just to pretend like I was somewhere else for a second. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So just just as an example of like who's got it better? Well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Who does have it better? But but we're we're prone to it. We're prone to looking at other people. Yeah. Um, and as a matter of fact, our sense of wellness, financial yeah. wellness, is entirely dependent on this social comparison, and that is what is so fascinating. And oh, so there's more. been yeah, there's been a ton of studies done on this. Whether or not we'll use money for an example, whether or not you feel like you're financially okay is entirely based on who you're comparing yourself to. So so the quick answer here is around shame is just compare yourself to a different group of people. I mean, right. that's that's sort of the psychological hack because that's essentially what what's happening. So if, if, for example, you have a lot of money and you feel shame about it, well, just compare yourself to people who have a lot of money and don't seem to care about anyone else, you know, and think about what you're doing and, and how you're generous tipper, for example, or, you know, doing nonprofit work. Just think about that. Compare yourself to those people. and it's fascinating. So let, let's just say that you're, you're very, very poor. You're in a village. You know, you have five goats and your neighbors all have two. You are going to have the subjective experience of being wealthy. The, the same as if you had millions, because again, the only thing that matters is our comparison within this tribe, because that is how we survive. I am a little bit like about this because the kind of the blowing up of this idea that we should be striving to stop comparing ourselves. Instead of just accepting the fact that it is human nature to compare ourselves, and we might be better served by recognizing when we're doing that so that we can uncouple the shame that we inevitably will feel when we do it. Instead of just perpetuating this cycle, because I know, you know, that if I'm, let's say, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm trying to, trying to better myself, you know, I want to, grow and expand and I want to, you know, be the best version of myself that I can be, right? And one of the two bits of advice that I'm given is, well, just stop comparing yourself to other people. And then I know I'm just still doing it. I'm still doing it. Then I have shame around that, that I'm, that I can't even get that far, right? Right, right. And I I just, it's so helpful to just just accept that you're doing it Um, and, and recognize that you're doing it. So, you know, when you're on Instagram, just just as because it's an example, you know, I I see a guy who has more muscles than me, is more fit than me. I can recognize that I'm feeling so much deprived. Of course, I'm comparing myself to this person. Of course, I am. And actually, immediately, it sort of diffuses it a bit. Right. And because if you're not aware that you're doing it or you think you're above doing it, you're just going to have this miserable feeling inside. And then you're going to go eat a bag of chips and you're not going to have any awareness (laughs) about why you did it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can, I can relate to that. You know, I, I live in a place where it is, where I'm surrounded by elite athletes left, right, and center. And it's, uh, it can be challenging to be a beginner at something. You know, I, I meet folks and I'm like, Oh, you know, what are you into? Oh, I'm kind of into mountain biking. And, and I'll be like, Oh, well, how long have you been riding? And, you know, I might have gone a couple times. I'm very much a beginner. And so I'll say, Oh, it's pretty good. And then, you know, five more minutes into the conversation, you're like, well, yeah, I was, I was a pro, you know, I was, yeah, a, yeah. I wasn't, I was in the Olympics, you know, I, was I, the I, Olympics. Didn't win. I didn't win, but <laughs> I know. like, Oh, only, only silver medal. Okay. Right. right. So I, I catch myself doing that in that context all the time. Oh my goodness. So, so many more things I could ask you knowing that I can't keep you to myself all day long, but I wonder if you would humor me with with this one question that I've been asking a lot of folks, which is what does good work mean to you? Oh, okay. That's a great question. So I actually have a mission statement that I, I created years ago. And to me, that's what good work is. So for me, I landed on my mission is to help bring hope and healing to the world. Mm. And so, and I actually hope our conversation has brought some hope and healing to um, even the one person who may be listening. Would that makes this conversation that you and I are having worth it? Even if it's me or you, by the way, I'm fine with that. <laughs> well, done deal. I've, I've, I'll, mission accomplished already. Mission accomplished. I've, and so I've learned so much. So I try to run everything through that. So the social media, the books, you know, whatever I'm doing. Yeah. Um, for me, that's the, the mission and it's, it is all good work if I have that in mind and that's my intention. I love that so much because we've been discussing a lot, you know, values aligned work. And when you have a personal mission statement, it probably makes it a lot easier to kind of gut check, self check, you know, just take the temperature of, of what your next move is going to be by saying, you know, does this align with my mission statement? Right. Yep. And if you make your mission statement bigger than you, it helps, I think, sort of calm the ego. And um, for me, for example, I, I have done a lot of television interviews and all that in the past and, and speeches. And since I am worried about what people think about me, I get nervous sure. sometimes and I hope I don't sound like an idiot. And so when I have that mission that's that's bigger than me, I, I feel like that part of me can relax and go away. And I, I'm more able to transmit what that sense of hope and healing that I want to pass on because I'm not stuck on stage just worrying about what everyone else thinks about me. Totally. Oh, the irony, not worrying about what other people think about you. <laughs> right. <laughs> but when we have that mission statement, maybe that is a temporary relief from that, that inevitable occurrence. Oh, well, God. and also, I know they're going to love me if there I'm speaking go. from my mission statement. See, that's the irony. Like if, when I'm really in that space of this higher vision and higher purpose for myself, I yeah. already know that people are going to resonate and, and appreciate that. So, yeah. And has there ever been a time when you messed it all up, where you made a big blunder, where you were like, oof, that did not align with my mission, and then you had to go and, and repair. Um, uh, oh, yeah. I, just, I like to ask a struggle question because, yeah. you know, lest anyone think, you know, oh, my gosh, he's got it all figured out and never makes any of these mistakes. No, I, I would say that I have to ask and seek forgiveness and make amends weekly. Um, especially with the people I love the most, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I sort of joke that my message around all this comes from my mess and it really does. And <laughs> it came from me making terrible mistakes 
Mm. and uh, around like money, for example, and then trying to figure out like, why did I do that? Like, why would a reasonably intelligent person make this type of mistake? And for me, that led to unraveling and uncovering, you know, my childhood and what it was like for me growing up and what beliefs and habits did I inherit from my parents and my grandparents and my great grandparents because a lot of these scripts, for example, are just being passed down through the generations. Yeah. And so I think it's a fascinating exercise to try to figure out who wrote this script, you know, and is this the one I want? And is there a way I can make it fit me better? Is there a way I can make it more accurate? I think it's a good exercise. Yeah. Who who wrote it and, and who's holding the pen now? Is that epigenetics? Yes. Yeah. And so part of it is it's like this. We'll just have this this emotion and not know why. And so, for example, for me, I, I got interested in psychology of financial planning and everything after I lost a bunch of money day trading in my 20s. Mm. And I was like, oh, gosh, why would I do something so stupid? And I went home and I interviewed my mother and I found out stories from my grandfather. And it's like, so my grandfather lost all his money in the Great Depression, like put it in mm. the bank one day. It's all gone. My mom had all this fear. We didn't have much money because my grandfather never put a dollar in the bank the rest of his life. And so I didn't know that story. All I know is I had a ton of fear about being poor and I mistrusting financial institutions, all this kind of crazy stuff. I never even heard the story yet. I was playing out this emotion and this mindset. It, it, It was shocking to me. But I think that if you're, if you find yourself tripping up around things and it just doesn't like you're doing something that doesn't feel like it fits. I think there's so much value in trying to blame, you know, your great grandparents or something and, and just sort of look through the family history because yeah. we are playing out these patterns right now. And it's, it's sure. fascinating. It's scary. And it's also thrilling if you can identify them because it just puts things in a brand new perspective. Sure. Yeah. And if you, you know, and if you have the good fortune to be able to have access to that information as well, right? Absolutely. Truly, I could, I have so many more questions that I could ask you, but I feel like I'm, I'm going to walk away and I'm going to reflect and I have more questions. And I love when questions beget questions, right? We're all trying to stay curious here. So if folks want to learn more about your work, any uh, resources that you might have available where they could help themselves, where should they go? Well, on social media, I'm either Brad Klontz or Dr. Brad Klontz. That's probably the best way. Great. So I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on YouTube, TikTok, Snapchat, all of them. You're on there, but you're not on there all the time. Yeah, I try to I try to create more than I consume. That that's that's my general and I try to exercise more than I consume. I mean it's there you it's, go. it's a theme. Yeah. Uh well Dr. Brad Plans, thank you so much for this conversation. It was wonderful, fascinating, and just eye opening in so many ways. So thank you. I know that's gonna resonate deeply with a lot of folks out there. It was thank my so pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, friends. I'd love for you to join this conversation and hear your perspective too. To connect with us, head over to leahleonard.me and way to go. Good work.